How the heck are you? Me, I'm great. I am about to take my nieces to a Christmas show, which you are joining us for. Yes, we can't be apart for one evening. No, we simply can't. And I think it'll be fun. I'm gonna. I'm forcing them to wear their cute little outfits and get dressed up. <laughs> I think it'll be fun. Yuletide. Yuletide bouginess. <laughs> what Christmas is all about. So who are you? I'm a, a podcaster and all around great person. I'm Hannah, also a podcaster, and I do okay. Nice. Our intros are enough to turn people right the fuck off. I know, literally. <laughs> Sorry. We're like, how annoying can we be? Right out of the gate. At least they know what they're in for. And this is Rehash, a podcast about the social media phenomenons that strike a nerve in our culture only to be quickly forgotten, but we think are due for a revisiting. This season is on the public theater, which is all about our collective fascination with a good public villain. And today's episode is... Who is the bad art friend? Yes. October 2021, Twitter was in a frenzy over a New York Times story written by Robert Kolker called Who is the Bad Art Friend? The piece told the story of two women, Don Dorland and Sonia Larson, who at the time of publishing were engaged in a legal battle over a story written by Larson, which Dorland claimed had been partially plagiarized from her. From that description, it sounds kind of innocuous, but let me tell you, the story played out like a literary Gen X mean girls. While the central questions asked by who is the bad art friend pertain to plagiarism, there's also a lot to unpack from both the story and its reception about social media, which we'll be focusing on today. Hmm. Uh, this episode is going to go through the story generally as told in the Quilker article, and then, you know, we're going to look at it in its life as a viral sensation. So, Maya. I know you read the article because when it came out, I made you read it. Um, Ooh, I was all up in that shit. Without spoiling too much, uh, what do you remember and like what were your general takeaways? Okay, let's see. I remember at first being like, this one lady's so annoying. And at the end being like, this other lady's so much worse. And then, at, and then finally just being like, wow, they're both so annoying. Both of you should go away and stop talking. <laughs> and also just loving like literary beef because wow, what an outmoded concept. I love it. And also thinking that people were being really over-intellectualizing about it on the internet. I think I yeah. tweeted that this was Gen X mean girls of the literary world or something like that. And I stand by that. It was crazy the amount of pieces written about this. But then when you think about the fact that these women are writers and the story is sort of about the writing world, it makes sense why so many writers would then feel some kind of way about the piece and have their own two cents to put in about their profession. Mm, yeah. Which is why I think it's created this big dialogue afterwards. I mean, we'll talk about it, but there were just so many takes about what the story meant. <laughs> writers do be writing. Writers be writing. I'm going to 
walk you through the story again. I tried to keep it as summarized as possible. <laughs> I'm so excited. But it is a saga. So let's all buckle ourselves in and I'll try not to talk your ears off. Strap on. Strap in. Yeah. <laughs> strap on. <laughs> so Don and Sonia meet at a creative writing center in Boston called Grub Street around like 2007, 2008. They're not close friends, but at the very least, they're like peers. I think Dawn believes they're closer friends than maybe they are. Sonia is also part of a writing group called the Chunky Monkeys. Remember that name. It sounds like Sonia was hanging out with the plastics of Grub Street, while Dawn was more of a desperate wannabe. Oh, yeah. Holger immediately starts describing Dawn as this sort of woo-woo-y empath type. He immediately mentions how her friends call her a feeler and that she comes off a little extra, which is sort of an understatement. She has had a difficult upbringing and looks like to writing and her connections with other people as pathways to like healing, you know? So as part of her healing journey in 2015, Dawn donated her kidney to a stranger as part of a chain donation. So this means that someone in line for a kidney with no friends or family as matches will receive Dawn's kidney. And then the expectation is that one of those friends or family members that couldn't give that person a kidney will give someone else along the chain a kidney. And it will keep going. Maya, would you give me a kidney? That whole, like, Selena Gomez debacle made me so scared about giving a kidney because the girl who gave that kidney, it sounded like that was really rough for her. So, yes, I would. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that sounds like a hard maybe. <sighs> Anyways. Would you give me a kidney? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, Dawn has been out of Boston for a few years, but she's still connected to her former Grub Street peers online. And this is how Sonia ends up in a private Facebook group created by Dawn to chronicle her experience with kidney donation. It's in this Facebook group that Dawn posts the letter she's written for the individual at the end of this donation chain. Unbeknownst to Dawn, while she's posting in the group, Sonia and her fellow chunky monkeys are sharing her posts amongst each other and making fun of what they perceive to be sheer narcissism. I'm sort of torn between two worlds here because on the one hand, I think the chunky monkeys reading of Dawn and her Facebook group as narcissistic is sort of a boomer take she is doing something super altruistic so i think she's allowed she's braver than i <laughs> allow me to say i, I would give Clearly. you a kidney okay, I, I just okay. thought about it harder okay she's doing something altruistic i think she's allowed to have a facebook group about her i mean she's giving a kidney to a stranger that is one of the craziest it's something you do when like someone close to you is dying she's just like i'll just do it yeah because so yeah. let her pat herself on the back why not but also, if an acquaintance added me to this group, I would hate it so much and, like, maybe make fun of it a little bit. I understand both of their approaches here. You know, yeah, let Dawn do her thing. Sonia's entitled to make fun of it. What is your personal line between, like, fun self-indulgence and narcissism online? Because I feel self-conscious posting on, like, my Instagram story more than one day in a row and thinking about people who are willing to make Facebook 
groups about themselves. What do you feel comfortable in that kind of spectrum? It just kind of platform dependent. On Instagram, I just feel so embarrassed every time I post. Like, I'm like, I'm just annoying all of you so much. Also, because I know a lot of people who are who think that that's annoying. So it, it, I know this. My worst fears about what other people think are kind of confirmed in some ways. But at the same time, Facebook kind of operates a bit differently. I feel like it is more kind of personal. But then like also with my YouTube, I feel comfortable posting quite a bit on there because it's like these people are subscribed to this kind of brand. And so it's more content. So I don't know. It is platform specific. But typically with my own personal stuff, I am kind of embarrassed to be posting. I think I post way too much, but I I don't think I even post nearly as much as some other people do. You don't. I don't really talk about myself personally. I think that's a digital native thing that we actually grew up so much with the fear of not putting out too much information out there that we don't actually reveal the intricacies of our lives as much as older generations do, which is fascinating to me. Absolutely. And that's something we will talk about here because this story really is about people who got to grow up without social media, but that means they don't have the same savviness that people our age do. Mm -hmm. And I think even if you were to log on to Facebook today, for us, Facebook feels passe, but for middle-aged people and older they're still using it. My parents still complain about stuff that like kooky people they have online or posting. My dad gets in Facebook arguments with people. It becomes clearer the generational differences about our approaches to social media. So back to the story. Dawn notices that although they've been reading the posts in the Facebook group, Sonia and her friends have not reached out to her or even liked the posts that she's posting. So she does something cringe. Mm. (laughs) Dawn reaches out to Sonia just to ask if she's aware of her donation, to which Sonia answers that she has and is like, and it's such a noble thing you're doing. So in a piece for Vanity Fair on Bad Art Friend, writer Erin Vanderhoof argues that the story's real culprit is Facebook, which she says has rewritten the very rules of communication to normalize contempt. Vanderhoof points to Dawn's confrontation of Sonia as one of many instances of antisocial online behavior displayed by the characters in the piece. Basically because of the way Facebook's algorithm works, we know this now that they get a lot of their traffic from hate scrolling or hate Mm -hmm. interacting. And so, I mean, it makes sense. Sonia and her friends are in this group hate watching. Hate watching, yeah. Yeah. The content. But... There's also still a misunderstanding amongst these people about Facebook etiquette or social media etiquette versus how you would interact with each other in the real world. I just think taking it to a private message for some reason does feel like being extra because it's like you're taking the time to create a new message and like everything feels very political in the private message sphere versus the public social media sphere. That I do think it could be read like that. However, I do think it's a bit of like an exaggeration to think that it's like actually breaching etiquette that much. But I think there is something about social media that allows a false intimacy that someone you might not have immediate access to to call out and be like, hey, Mm, you're not supporting me in real life. You can have these weird expectations from. So if they're not people who would see each other in real life, you can still confront her as if she... Because she's like, hey, you're you. my bestie, and they're not actually besties. Well, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. 
So I think it's interesting. I, I think Vanderhoof is coming at this piece from a really interesting angle. It makes me think of the ways that social media has given us this twisted window also into knowing who has seen or ignored our posts, mm. who has unfollowed us, you know, which is the kind of information I actively avoid because I know it will make me I do not Ill. have the follower app. No, I don't have the follower app. I refuse to see who has watched my stories. I just don't want to know who's watching me. I know I'm being surveilled and I'm putting myself out there to be surveilled. But for some reason, to know who's watching makes me so self-conscious. Yeah. But I think when you ha- you wish one single person would interact with something like Dawn, probably because she aspires to these women. Like, yeah. she's It's on the back of her mind, even if she's not going out of her way to think about it. I'm sure it is on the back of her mind like, that she's looking out for them to like it. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. But then she, the more she does it, the more power is being given to it. Totally. But that's just like, I just think that's what's going on in her mind. And I think it's a natural human instinct, you know? So then do you think there are any circumstances where you would call call someone out the way Don did no like no that's so embarrassing I would not I would not private message someone and be like why don't you like my posts but I'm not Don, and I'm also way younger than her and have a different I love how much we're emphasizing how old they are but it is like I just think I have a different relationship with social media and a different expectation with it than she would I think the way they use social media is something that we grew out of Mm -hmm. I think I was a lot more treating it like the real world it's Uh, oddly middle school absolutely so it's around this same time that sonia begins to work on a short story called the kindest sonia larson is a mixed race chinese american woman who grew up in a predominantly white area of minnesota so much of her writing draws on this facet of her upbringing the kindest is a commentary on white saviorism about a chinese american woman who receives a kidney donation from a white woman she doesn't know. Importantly, the white woman in the story writes a letter to her kidney recipient that very closely resembles the one that Dawn posted in her Facebook group. In early drafts of the story, the kidney donor is even named Dawn. It's funny because I think this article was genuinely divisive within the literary world. Colker's article because of the questions it raised about inspiration versus plagiarism. But in this case, it wasn't even inspiration. It's just copying and pasting. Dawn's actual writing was posted in the story. Excerpts of it. Excerpts from it. Yeah, that is plagiarism. Yeah. The problem is, though, like, a Facebook post doesn't have IP. I'm not even talking about, like, legality but like phil no no but yeah it doesn't have a piece you can do it philosophically and this is kind of what i was getting at in the caroline calloway episode with natalie it just morally and philosophically to me is dubious (laughs) at least in that case it was like natalie experienced those things with caroline i mean it was their shared story in this case she's just like this sounds like a really interesting idea whoop No, no, and I'm not saying that Natalie was plagiarizing Caroline. More what I'm saying is just the entitlement to use real-life people's experiences as your subject, but then in this case, it's also fully just taking it. And I just think it's bad writing, frankly, that you can't even lift from the inspiration enough to make it your own. Like, you actually just have to take it. I mean, I read The Kindest. It's not very good. No, it's not good. It doesn't feel very nuanced. It's written with like an immediate contempt for the Don Dorland surrogate character. 
that makes it sort of uninteresting because as much as Sonia will try to argue that she's trying to make it what she says like a Roshark test, it, it is very clear who you're supposed to side with. I do think it falls into this trend of this recent trend in lit where it feels like there's a lot of books that have come out that end up on like Reese Witherspoon's book list or like Kaya Gerber's book lists that are just written to basically teach white ladies about racism 101 and sometimes feel very like didactic in a sense that the actual story is very much lacking but the message is very clear and sometimes really unnuanced about the way that racial microaggression and like systemic racism actually unfolds in our society. So they end up writing these really cartoonish villains that don't end up making for a very satisfying or multi-layered story. And I think just even the perspective she's writing from is this perspective of contempt that even if you're trying to seem like you're approaching both characters in a three-dimensional way, it's clear that you see Don Dorland and the character you've written based off of her as these caricatures. I mean, yeah, from a writing perspective also, just I don't really believe that you should ever have contempt for your characters. No. I think that you can you can admit that characters are flawed and and some way more flawed than others some maliciously driven but to just like hate a character results in yeah what is resulting here which is like a one-dimensional cartoon and it's interesting because one of sonia's biggest advocates in all of this is her friend writer celeste ng who wrote little fires everywhere which i read and then i reread it this summer and i think is great a far more nuanced take on race in white suburban spaces as well as class and and motherhood but i just think someone who's capable of writing like such an interesting and complicated story then going to bat so hard for this plagiarized not very good uh piece of fiction i think they just really don't like dawn yeah (laughs) it's kind of what it comes down to and also yeah she i guess she's just backing up her friend yeah i think she's also trying to cover herself too because she is very much publicly involved in these group chat in these messages group chats. Yeah. yes unfortunately um so then in 2016 a friend of dawn's attends a reading in which he hears a really early version of the kindest he informs dawn publicly on facebook suggesting that she was used as an inspiration and even tags sonia that's crazy. <laughs> Which Vanderhoof, um, in her Vanity Fair piece, will point to as another social media indiscretion. To me, there is something very middle school about it. Um, There's something fucking Wild West about it. Like, damn. <laughs> in your early Facebook years, did you ever do anything like this? Oh, my God. I definitely did. No, like, I would kind of make early versions of like sub tweets where i'd like kind of like sub wall post someone and then they'd they'd comment on it being like hey my is this about me and i'd be like no (laughs) i was really annoying as a kid and i remember making facebook statuses tagging people being like blah blah and blah blah are mad at me why frowny face (laughs) if i were to go back through my facebook posts like a wall post i'd probably be mortified 
to see i could see myself having done that probably i should not have had facebook and when i was 12 no it was awesome uh-huh. yeah so the, uh don then messages sonia but she denies that the story is about don okay she claims that don's donation was simply an inspiration slash starting off point for the story okay uh, don continues to message sonia to little response Sonia then does reply, asserting that while she understands Dawn's hurt, she's entitled to use Dawn's situation as inspiration. Basically, is like, good friends don't get in the way of other friends' artistic liberties. Who is the bad art friend? <laughs> Following Dawn's call-out, Sonia makes some changes to the letter so it doesn't, like, look too much like Dawn's, and she changes the character names, and it gets published. And it does well. It gets picked up to be on like the american short fiction website that i guess these writers would all be frequenting but when dawn finally reads the story even with sonia's last minute edits she sees aspects of her letter she now feels vindicated and begins a tirade against sonia she reaches out to the website that published her story as well as like various writing institutions that sonia is a part of to accuse her of plagiarism when the Kindest is chosen by the Boston Book Festival's One City, One Story anthology, Don sends the festival a cease and desist and threatens $150,000 in damages. They'll spend a lot of money trying to keep the Kindest, but will eventually just cancel the anthology. Wow. This is when I think that Don loses favorability from readers. She's justified in her hurt. And yeah, you do feel bad for her for the beginning of the story. But do you think she had any right to do this? No, I don't think either of them had any right to do any of this, really. This just comes back to that constant message of this season, I guess, which is just people being unable to let things go. Yeah. (laughs) Like Dawn not being able to just make peace with the situation and instead seeking revenge. Yeah, it just doesn't look good on her. But I think about when you and I were trying to fly to Mexico City earlier this year and American Airlines fucked us over and we had to take a later flight. We had to wait at the airport for eight hours. Was it eight hours? Jesus. I went on a tirade against American Airlines. I wouldn't stop calling them. I was tweeting at them. I was doing emailing. I was doing all this stuff. I I don't know why, but I went into full like Karen mode. I kind of pushed you there. Like, I really pushed the situation there because in that circumstance, the airlines are some of the greediest fucking companies in the fucking world. Like, they're horrible. They're bad for the environment. They're exploitative of their workers. Mm. They overcharge us. Our flights were fucking expensive. And then without a single apology from them being like, sorry, you missed a day of this trip that you both saved up to go on. We deserved compensation for that. And that was within their rules. And American Airlines is just a horrible airline. So I don't feel bad. God, this is too much of a tangent. Yeah. Do you give a fuck? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So Sonia then sues Dawn for defamation, I think also harassment, and Dawn will then file a counterclaim. While the women are in litigation, many texts and email conversations between Sonia and her fellow chunky monkeys are disclosed as part of the discovery. Can you imagine I don't want to know what the horrible things people say about me probably all the time. Like, and I get, I get them in comment sections, but people I know, that's so hurtful. I I'm sure it's happening. That's okay. But I don't need to know. It's one of those things where 
you can live your life accepting the fact that people are probably saying shit about you, but to actually read it in detail, no human being should have to endure that. <laughs> in these conversations, Sonia and her friends are mocking Dawn's posts about her kidney donation. In one text, Sonia also essentially admits to plagiarizing parts of the letter, while at other times raving about how Dawn is a goldmine for inspiration. Yeah. Shameless. Shameless. So, the story gets published, and it blows up on Twitter and becomes fodder for op-eds. People start finding the publicly available court documents from Larson v. Perry, which is their court case, which include much of the Chunky Monkey's correspondences, as well as Dawn's emails to Sonia and her attempts at exposing her. If you want more details of the documents, Michael Hobbs has like a deep dive on his Substack. Go check it out. It's entertaining as hell. So in researching this article, I kept coming across the imagery of a Rorschach test. Kolker explains how Sonia wanted the kindest to operate like one. Vanderhoof uses the analogy in her article. Michael Hobbs calls it one. I think that much of the appeal of Kolker's article lies here. The story is so weird and specific, yet can be interpreted through so many different lenses. So whatever aspect of the story appeals to or resonates with you, you'll likely focus on that. If you've ever been bullied or socially rejected, you may be inclined to empathize with Dawn. But I've also seen articles that look at the story as Dawn, a white woman trying to take ownership over a woman of color's work. I just think it's messy interpersonal drama. Yes, which brings us to the take that I think we both felt the most drawn to, which came from a writer we follow who goes by the Twitter handle of Safi. What was the tweet, Maya? Oh, something about how our society is obsessed with like the true crimeization of low stakes interpersonal drama. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> genuinely genius words we should have Safi on eventually for this podcast what is it about this take that like really spoke to you well just the concept of what this entire season's really about is systematizing and over intellectualizing human nature something like things that happen between human beings that on a daily basis that actually aren't as they suck but they aren't as bad as we make them out to be but because our society loves stories and we love heroes and we love villains we love to whittle these conversations down into stories of good and evil basically we love vigilante justice as well so it's like this entire story was like the perfect foundation for that it was like a it was like a hotbed for that because of the way his article had kind of asked the audience to actively participate like the, the title is who is the bad art friend like you have to figure it out it's kind of like gone girl almost oh, <laughs> I like that. in a way just in the way gone girl kind of flips the switch on you over and over again about who really is bad in that story but at the end of the day these are real human beings and the actual drama is so fucking petty <laughs> i also do love that the article asks the question of who is the bad art friend as if bad art friend was in our lexicon somehow. When, <laughs> when I bad art pull, friend. Like, pulled up Twitter that day, I was like, what the fuck is what a is bad art friend? Art friend. <laughs> I guess a friend in your creative industry. But I mean, I don't know. It doesn't really have that great of a ring to it. I guess you can't say who's the bad writer friend. <laughs> so something I didn't realize until researching this episode is that I've actually read Robert Kolker's work before. I read his 2013 book about the Long Island serial killer called Lost Girls, an Unsolved American Mystery years ago. 
So he is experienced in writing true crime. The book itself is actually very interesting and in-depth and compassionate look at the supposed victims of the killer and, and their families trying to find justice and their dealings with the police who are not taking victims seriously because they were sex workers. I don't, I'm not going to write him off because he's written true crime. However, I do think it lends to, yeah, the nature in which he decided to approach this story. He starts the piece with setting up Dawn as this almost eerily cheerful person, which makes it even more powerful when it feels like she's suddenly snapped in her plot for revenge against Sonia. The story is told a bit out of order, so we learn the juiciest details about the group chat towards the end. In the fashion that like a true crime story would most ideally be presented to you. We are in an era where like true crime does dominate the internet, including podcasting. Oh yeah, the podcasters love just bringing up little dead white girls and really just hashing out their suffering and making audiences really mad and scared. <laughs> I have really complicated feelings about true crime. I definitely consume it more out of the two of us i'm a scaredy cat i don't need to feel paranoid whenever i walk down the street more than i already do as a woman i've for some fucked up reason have found that consuming true crime has actually helped me in becoming less afraid you're not alone like that's a full statistic like majority women are consumers of true crime i think for that very reason yeah, I don't like writing it off completely as a genre, but I think that it is just overflowing with garbage. Totally. And has somehow become democratized in a way that I don't think any other journalistic endeavors would be. Well, because it's, it's pulp. It's real-life pulp. It's pulp, but it's also still based in journalistic... It depends. Not all the podcasts that are no, like, not hosted, at all. that's why it's democratized, right? They're not all journalists. But it's interesting that we've allowed this to happen. Would we let people give us our news about, like, I don't know, politics? No, because I'm, like I'm saying, it's pulp. This is like juicy stuff that people are going to be drawn to regardless of whether or not it's good because it's juicy. Like, we have morbid curiosity within us that we will inherently be drawn to this no matter what. So anyone can, can pique your interest with a juicy, passionate murder story. That's true. Maybe that's what we should just start doing. Rake in the listeners. My favorite murder. You mean? <laughs> so we've seen the ways that truly scary or depressing true crime or legal battles have captivated social media. The Gabby Petito story had been viral only a few months before Bad Art Friend. And watching the way that situation has been dissected and used as clickbait was so disheartening. You think about a story like that or... You know, the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial this year, which has never made me want to throw my phone down the toilet more than anything else. It's now on my Wikitubia page as one of the main fun facts to know about me is where I stand on that issue, which is great. It's like they want me to end up on 4chan. Yeah, I bet <laughs> you're there. Um, I fucking hope not. It's clear that online users, especially on Twitter, want something to debate with one another and do weird intense deep dives into so i guess i would rather bad art friend be the subject of that than an actual horrific criminal well and again what changes this is that in so many of these other cases like west Elm caleb or 
Lindsay Ellis, like any of these people who I feel like have been wrongfully put out in the public eye or like blown up in a certain way for something negative. Dawn and Sonia really put themselves out there in the public eye. Like they really did so much work to get this story out there because they're both so stubborn and how they feel about the situation and so blinded and like honestly so full of themselves that they almost did it to themselves and I hate saying that but this really does feel like a situation where this didn't need to be talked about by anyone. (laughs) It's like I do think it's fun that we were trying to extract some greater meaning from this story. I mean everyone had been trying to when it it really is a story of two narcissists. Yeah. Ooh she's diagnosing. I'm doing it again. You can't help but breathe a sigh of relief when the subjects of all of this are two living adults who willingly brought their dirty laundry into the spotlight. And it is fun to go through court documents and... And group chat shit talk. (laughs) Sonia, to be completely honest, feels like a mean girl. Reading her group chat DMs and all this stuff and the way she interacts with Dawn, that is kind of my worst idea of some... A little too close to home and people I've interacted with who are so mean and so far honestly up their own asses that they can't even see when they're wrong like what she did was kind of shitty and she just can't admit it dawn feels a bit less too close to home because she's a bit of a character and a bit kooky crazy that more inclined to feel a bit bad for her because she is kind of the one who got a bit burnt in this situation just in terms of personal feelings sonia got burnt in other ways i guess literarily and lost her job (laughs) and she lost her job so it's like but that is somehow less relatable or less emotionally driven, which is awful. I just think that they're both annoying. Well, I first felt like I was seeing a lot of pro-Sonia, anti-Dawn takes. That was hard for me to wrap my head around because it just felt like people were trying to suggest that she was being selfish for wanting acknowledgement. Her initial crime was just that she was annoying. And some people can't help that. Some people can't help And Sonia's initial crime is just that she's, like, mean. I don't know, yeah. And yeah, and there's a little part of Sonia in all of us. Like, I think we can all be like Sonia, definitely. Okay, Hannah, who is the bad art friend? You. You won't give me a kidney. Fuck. Okay. Maya, who's the bad art friend? Me. Why? I won't give you a kidney. So you admit it. Rehash is hosted by Hannah Rain and me, Maia. It's produced and edited by me, and the intro and outro song is produced by our talented friend, Ian Mills. Thanks for listening. <laughs>